All right, our reading is from Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Kristen, let's pray. Gracious God, we ask now that your words read, that my words spoken, that the thoughts and meditations and contemplations of our hearts together this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, because of your Spirit in us. And we would ask this morning as we begin to study and see your Word that we wouldn't just see words, but we would indeed find you, Jesus, that you would be present and true and real and effective, that you would be for us exactly what we need and that your grace would give us encouragement if we need it, comfort if it is our desire, challenge if we need that. Whatever it is, would you grant it because you are gracious and you are good. We pray this for our good and we pray it, more importantly, for your glory. We pray it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As Mac mentioned, we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is not just writing a history of Jesus' life. This isn't a mere biography. Matthew is writing a gospel. He's writing to show us Jesus, and he's writing so that we would be wooed into life with Jesus through these words. It would be, we would be able to see Jesus for who he is and then see ourselves for who we are and who we can be in him. That's what Matthew desires for his readers. And by the Holy Spirit, that's what he desires for us. That's what Jesus desires for us this morning. And 
In this chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, Matthew is inviting us to find and see Jesus in the midst of the challenges and the trials of our lives. Not just in the good, but sometimes even in the hard. So kids, as we get started this morning, I want to talk to you just for a few minutes. And adults, listen in. I think you'll find this encouraging and helpful as well. But kids, I just want to recognize for a minute with you that there are some scary, hard things in this story. Did you notice that? In this story, there's a king, and he's not a good king. In fact, he's a bad king. He could even be called an evil king. His name was Herod, and Herod was the king of God's people, Israel. And the wise men told Herod that Jesus was going to be born. Remember at Christmas time when we think about Jesus being born, we get excited, don't we? Because we know that Jesus is the best of all kings, that he is the king of kings. And the gifts that Jesus give are the best gifts of all the gifts. It's a good thing to be told that Jesus is born for us. And yet, Herod, this king, didn't find it to be a good thing at all that Jesus was being born king of kings because Herod wanted to be the king. Even though he was a terrible king, and Jesus would be the best king. He still didn't want Jesus to be king. He wanted to be king. And so he did a terrible, terrible thing. This King Herod killed a dozen, maybe even two babies to try and make sure that he could kill Jesus as well. What a hard, scary thing that happened. I just want you to know that that's in the Bible. And it's good that stories like this are in the Bible, isn't it? Because sometimes in our world right now, there are still hard and scary things that happen. And so we need to know where is God in the midst of those hard and scary things. Maybe kids in your life right now, there's something hard. There's something challenging. Maybe there's even something scary in your life as well. And so what I want you to know is this. And Jesus shows us in this story God is with you. He's not far away somewhere, way far away, so far away that he can't do anything to help you. That's not where he is. He's come all the way down right into the middle of your life, right where you need him the most. That's where Jesus is in the midst of your hard things. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to see him there, that he loves you, and he's going to take care of you. How many of you kids remember learning how to swim or learning how to ride a bike? Anyone? Can you remember that? That was kind of a hard and a scary thing, right? Maybe not the scariest thing, but it's scary to stand on the edge of a swimming pool. And maybe your dad and your mom was in the pool and they kept saying, jump, jump, jump. And you look at the water and you're like, are you crazy? I can't swim. Why would I jump? That's nuts. And what did your parents say to you? What did they say? They said, I'm here. I love you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Look at me. Don't look at the water. Look at me and jump. And you did it, right? The most important thing to see right then in the middle of that hard thing was your parent who loved you and was going to take care of you. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking you to do this morning. If there's something hard in your life, if there's something scary in your life, he wants you to see that he is real, that he's with you. He'll never let anything happen to you and that you're safe. 
There's some hard things in this story, aren't there? That's a good thing because there are hard things in our life. Jesus has come. He's come to defeat death and sin and hell, and he did it. And he rose again and he proved it. And he's going to come again one day, and he's going to finish what he started. But in the meantime, brokenness remains, sin remains. We experience it. We feel it. And it's hard, and sometimes it's scary. And Jesus is inviting each and every one of us in this room this morning to see him for us, with us, delivering us, and then to respond. He gives us three rounds of the hard in this story. And then he gives us three rounds of Scripture to remind us and tell us that God is real and that he is present and that we can see him in the midst of it. Because when the hard things happen, those questions come, don't they? Round one, Mary and Joseph. Can you put yourself in their shoes? Remember, they're teenagers. They just had their first baby. They just had their first baby under dubious circumstances from outside perspectives. They've just had their first baby who happens to be the savior of the world, and now they're trying to figure out how to be the mom and dad of the savior of the world. Challenging times for Mary and Joseph, right? And it's about a year or so later, and they're getting their feet underneath them, and they're awoken in the middle of the night. You know what that's like, to just be awoken in the middle of the night. And an angel is saying, get up, grab your stuff, get out of the house right now. Take what you can grab, make sure you take Jesus, and get out. Into the dark, into the desert, you're going to Egypt because there's a price on your baby's head. Can you imagine Your life is now refugee life because your baby has a price on its head. Go. That's their circumstance. That would be terrifying. That would be heart-wrenching. Bound to bring sorrow into their life. And that's where Matthew starts in this passage. And some of us can relate to that, can't we? I love baptism Sundays. I love baptism Sundays. It's been a fun weekend for me. Got to hang out with the young adults on retreat, spend time with my wife, spend time with Jesus, spend time with a speaker who happens to be a friend and be fed in God's Word and not being the one delivering the Word, which I love too. But you know what I mean. It's been a good weekend. But it's not always good weekends in our lives, right? At the end of the sermon last week, I said something that I think was probably a little bit provocative in noticing that the Magi who made their way to worship Jesus, as they got closer to Jesus' presence in worship, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I said, we'll know when we're getting into Jesus' presence in worship when we too find ourselves rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And that's true. I stand by that. That's a gospel blessing in our life, that Jesus has come and defeated death and we can rejoice. But friends, we don't always feel like rejoicing, do we? And so in those times when we don't, then what do we do? And how do we think about God? And how do we think about our circumstances? And do we ask the questions that Mary and Joseph surely asked and that the psalmist himself asks over and over, God, where are you right now? What are you doing? And are you going to help me? 
is God surprised when we ask those questions? Is he surprised by the circumstances that lead us to ask those questions? He is not surprised. Jesus, kids, is who? Who is Jesus? Jesus is whom? Who is Jesus? Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God who has come to us. And so this story of the trials and terrors of Mary and Joseph is also the story of the trials and terrors of Jesus himself, of God. Is God surprised that there are hard things in your life? He was born into hard things before he could speak or probably even walk, the Prince of Peace had a price on his head and was a refugee baby in Egypt. God came right into our trials so that when we think about the struggles that we're facing, we can know that God isn't far off. He is right here. He's present He's gone through the same trials that we have so that he can deliver us out the other side. That's what's happening in these stories. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. God who has come to deliver us from all the hurts and sorrows of the world by stepping right into them. Not standing on the banks of our sorrows as we flounder in the middle of the river. He got right in there with us. I don't know what your sorrows are right now. And maybe you're having a fantastic weekend. And I'm so glad. But maybe you're not. We were talking about anxiety on the young adult retreat. And Martin described anxiety, a generalized anxiety, a systemic anxiety for some of us that when we face a crisis and the alarm bells come on, we can't turn them back off. And some of you feel that way. And you're experiencing that. Where is Jesus in the midst of that for you? Some of you had a hard Christmas because it was the first Christmas without a loved one. And you can't manufacture exceedingly great joy all the time in the midst of those situations. And so maybe you are asking the question in that, Jesus, where are you? Just like Mary and Joseph. And the point this morning is not to say don't ask those questions. Ask those questions. Jesus invites you to, but he also invites you to find him in the midst of the answers. Actually, even if there is no satisfying answer, he invites you to find him and to know that whether it feels like it or not right now, he is the answer, the only answer that you need for hope and for nourishment, regardless of what's happening. See, this first cycle of terror for Mary and Joseph is bookended by Matthew with a prophecy. A prophecy from Hosea, who was writing 800 years before Jesus was born. Hosea references a time in Israel's history, God's people's history, a millennia before that. He says, out of Egypt, I, speaking for God, have called my son. He's reflecting on Jesus going down into Egypt and then coming back out of Egypt. And it brings to mind this prophecy, out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you remember back into the Exodus story, that God's people were numerous in the promised land under Joseph. 
And there was a famine, and so they went to Egypt, and they were numerous in Egypt. But they became too numerous and too powerful for Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh decided, I'm going to enslave you. And for 400 years, they were enslaved until God heard their cry, drew near, and delivered them out of Egypt. I called you, my son, Israel, to deliver you. And Matthew is reflecting on that prophecy, and he's recognizing that's happening again. Where is God in the middle of the hard things in life? He's hearing, he's drawing near, and he's delivering. That's what he does. That's what he did, and that's what he's doing again. Do you know that of Jesus in the midst of whatever you're dealing with right now? That he is God who comes and delivers right where you need it the most. Matthew's actually saying more than just that in this prophecy. If you're a really particular reader or you know good commentaries and good study Bibles, that's me, you might recognize that the pattern of Jesus' life in these early days of his life mirrors the pattern of the nation of Israel. Right? Israel went from the promised land to Egypt. Jesus goes from the promised land to Egypt. Israel comes out of the Egypt into the promised land. Jesus comes out of Egypt into the promised land to the Jordan. Matthew's trying to tell you something. Not just that God delivered, that's what he does, that's what he'll do again. What he's saying is Jesus is the final and full deliverance. Do you remember what Israel was supposed to do when they got to the promised land out of Egypt? They were supposed to be God's people. They were supposed to receive his blessing and then bless the nations. Right? They were supposed to live in such a way as God's people that God's peace and fullness and kingdom flourishing would come to the whole world. That was God's plan. He decided he was going to use his son Israel. And what happened to his son Israel? Not much good, right? Not only did they not deliver, they were part of the problem. And then in the muck with all the rest of us. And so what Matthew is saying in this prophecy is even more astounding. He's saying that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the Israel who is going to do what God wanted his people to do all along. Bring the blessing. Bring the peace. Bring the fullness. So there's some serious Bible geek stuff going on here, and it's really fun, and I love it. But there's some serious pastoral heart stuff going on here as well. Do you see that? In the midst of your struggle, whatever it is, you're probably looking for an answer. God, tell me why this is happening and maybe I'll be able to bear it. Is an answer really going to make the difference in your life? Or is one who can actually fully be the answer going to make the difference? Matthew's betting on door number two. He's inviting you and me to do the same See, when we face the hard circumstances and start to ask the hard questions, I think we can come up with some answers that are probably too simplistic and don't get to the heart of the challenge. One answer that often people give, even followers of Jesus often give sometimes, is that there's a problem with God. 
right? This circumstance is hard, and that's real. God is good, and he's powerful. So if God is good, and he's powerful, and this is hard, then there must be something wrong with God. Either he doesn't care enough, or he's not powerful enough, or maybe he just doesn't even exist enough. Does that ever occur to you as the answer to the hard thing? You're tempted to just say, you know what? There's a God problem. I'm going to step away from him for a while and just see what I can do on my own. The problem is, the problem doesn't go away. So Matthew's inviting us to consider, maybe there's another answer. Maybe even if we can't fully understand why or what he's doing, maybe God is present and doing something. Maybe Jesus is who he says he is to move us further into that kind of confidence and hope. I think Matthew gives us a second round of trials and challenges for Mary and Joseph that's followed by a second prophecy of the Scripture so that he can say, see, this is who Jesus is. Don't look at the water, look at him. Don't look at the water, look at him. The second round is just as challenging. Mary and Joseph are in Egypt, and surely they hear the news that Herod realizes that he had made a mistake sending the Magi to Jesus. And he goes, and he, as far as he's concerned, fixes the problem. Verse 16, he saw he had been tricked. He became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Can you imagine being Mary and Joseph? You're in Egypt, you're starting your new refugee life, and you hear word that Herod went ahead and did it. Your friends and your friends' kids back home, because Herod was looking for your child, I can't imagine the heartbreak and the hurt that they would be feeling. And that's real. And so Matthew gives us Jeremiah chapter 31. And he says, This is actually a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Well, that's an interesting, strange prophecy for Matthew to call to mind in this circumstance, isn't it? Rachel is the matriarch of Israel. Rachel was married to Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons and the 12 tribes. And Rachel, in childbirth with Benjamin, loses her life. And as she does, she weeps. And this is the reference that Jeremiah gives. Jeremiah is writing to Israel 600 years before Jesus. God's people are about to be wiped out by the Babylonians. Some of those babies are going to be killed or taken into captivity. And Jeremiah says, Rachel is weeping. It's a way for him to say that we're all weeping. It's a way for him to say even more deeply what God is doing, that God is weeping. God's people were exiled into Babylon because of their own issues, not because of circumstances outside their control. And yet God still gives the promise in Jeremiah 31, go read it later this afternoon, you will come back 
I'm going to take you back. Even if your own sorrows and struggles and hurts and fears are your own fault and your own problem, even if you're the one, I'm still going to be faithful. I'm still going to bring you back. I'm still with you. And by the way, until that happens and while you are hurting, do you know what I'm doing, God says? I'm weeping with you. I'm weeping for you. I'm not impassive. I'm not distant. I'm not removed. I'm sorrowing with your sorrow. And another thing that we're often tempted to do, I'm often tempted to do when circumstances get hard in life, is to either say there's a problem with God or there's a problem with me. Right? There's either a problem with God or there's a problem with me. If Jesus has come and he's made all things new and everything's supposed to be great and I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Jesus, if there's a problem, it must be with me. If I'm struggling or hurting, then maybe my faith isn't enough. Maybe I'm not strong enough. Maybe the problem is not with God. Maybe the problem is with me. And so our tendency can be, instead of to weep, our tendency might be to judge. Maybe judge ourselves, or maybe judge somebody else who is experiencing a challenging circumstance. And you see what Matthew is trying to say. That in the midst of God coming and being present and delivering, He is not coming in a spirit of judgmentalism. He's coming and He's weeping. And He's inviting and offering you to do the same thing for yourself and for those around you. God, where are you? Do you care? Mary and Martha asked Jesus at the death of their brother Lazarus, do you care? If you were here, you could have saved him. Where were you? Do you care? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't squelch their tears. He doesn't say, oh, ye of little faith. He says, show me where he is. And then what does Jesus do? when he sees his friend Lazarus in the grave. Kids, you know this, two words. Jesus wept. Where is Jesus in the midst of your challenge and your hurt? He's with you. He loves you. He's weeping. He's inviting you to do the same. Friends, when life is hard, Jesus is saying, look, look at me. Don't look at the water. Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at what I'm doing. Look at my tears. Hold on. Round three, Mary and Joseph come back. They come back home, but they don't get to come home. They come back home, and yet Herod's son, Archias, is on the throne, and he's a nasty guy too, and so the angel gives them a vision and says, don't go home. Don't go to Bethlehem. It's not safe there. Go to Nazareth. Go start a new life. New people, new town, smaller town. And surely Mary and Joseph are wondering what in the world is going to become of us. Hard times. And what does Matthew give them? The last prophecy? Look again in verse 23. 
And he went and lives in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This one's super Bible geeky, nerdy, wonky, because if you go look in the Old Testament and you search for that he would be called a Nazarene, do you know how many hits you're going to find? Get the best software you can find. Zero. Because there's no prophet that says, and he will be called a Nazarene. It's not there. So who is Matthew referring and what is he talking about? Um, I want to be careful not to make it seem like you have to be a Bible expert to be able to read the Bible. The reason I know the answer to this question is because I read commentaries and study Bibles, and they pointed me in the right direction, and you can do the exact same thing, right? That's an aside. You don't have to be a pastor who went to seminary to be able to read the Bible and apply it to your own life. But what those smart men and women have said about what Matthew is talking about is that there is a passage in Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 11. We actually studied this in our Advent series, Isaiah 11. Do you remember Jesus is the branch that grows out of the stump of Jesse? Jesse is the father of King David. That Jesus is the branch. He's the righteous branch. He's the one who will grow, the king who will grow out of the impotent kings of Israel. He's going to be the one who can fulfill all righteousness and bring God's peace. The word for branch, here's the point, the word for branch in Isaiah is, and I can't pronounce it, but it's the same word that is the root of Nazareth. Interesting. Does that settle the deal? Maybe not, but it's intriguing, right? That even this points us to the fact that Jesus is the one who's coming to deliver. But it does even more than that. Because there's a play on words that's happening here. That Jesus is the Nazir. He's the branch from the branch town. Jesus is the stick from the stick town. Jesus is the stick from the sticks, right? It's his pun. Jesus grew up in Nowheresville. Nazareth was Nowheresville. Nazareth wasn't even around in the Old Testament prophetic days. It was a shanty town. Later, a follower of Jesus, or a potential follower of Jesus would say, from Nazareth? He can't be from Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? It's the sticks. And Matthew is saying, that's exactly how God is going to deliver Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who would be despised and rejected and in that way bring God's peace and fullness for everyone, the oppressors and the oppressed and those of us who are both. And he was going to do it by getting low, by being the stick from Sticksville, by being the nobody from Nowheresville, by getting low. In other words, Matthew is pointing us right here in chapter 2 all the way to the cross, where Jesus would go as low as he possibly can go for you. So, in the midst of your anxiety or your sorrow or your uncertainty or your loneliness or your cancer, 
or your whatever it is, as you ask the question, God, where are you? Jesus is saying, look at me. Don't look at the water. Look at me. I'm here. I'm weeping with you. And I have gone to the cross. And it is done. And I will deliver you. Hold on. How might we respond as a congregation, as a church of followers of Jesus? Think of it this way. The friends in your life, your coworkers, your neighbors, those who you care about, when hard things happen to them, what would it take for them to want to come here to help them hold on? Are we the kind of people together who are willing to acknowledge that hurt is real and not just put on a smiley face and say everything's good because I have Jesus, even though it doesn't feel that way? Are we the kind of congregation that somebody would say, I want to come hurt with you because I see the way that you all hurt together? The Bible has a word for that. It's called lament. Recognizing the reality of the hard things together in prayer and in tears, but taking those hard things to Jesus and saying, we're going to look at you and look at you and look at you, and we're going to hold on together. It's an opportunity. It's a beautiful opportunity for you and for me and for us together. Pray that God would give us the grace to take him up on it. Let's do pray now. Jesus, if we're in this room and uh, life is filled with joy, would you help us to hold on to that joy and to experience you right in the middle of all the awesome things that are happening? And if our life is hard, would you reveal yourself to us right there as well? In the ways that we need you, we'll give you the glory. We pray it in your name. Amen.